welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. Well, hey, good morning again. Uh, this season uh, of Lent, we are in a series, and we've been sort of journeying with God through the deserts, and we began this journey with Jesus in the wilderness, and last week we were looking at the story of Moses and the people of Israel, and we talked about God's presence in the desert, sort of in the desert seasons of our lives, those difficult times, and we're continuing this journey today by talking about God's love in the deserts. And uh, today we have a special treat. I've invited a dear friend to to join us uh, and share with us from God's word, Nigel Morris. If you don't know Nigel, he is just a dear brother and he was a vineyard pastor for many years as well as a chaplain with the Anaheim PD. And as I always like to point out, he's actually a phenomenal drummer. He might like to hide it, but he really is. And so we are extremely blessed to have him here with us. And so please join me in welcoming up Nigel Morris. <laughs> Can we pray for you, brother? Please. Awesome. Yeah. Let's pray together. So, Father, we thank you uh, that you are God who speaks, that you are God who reveals. And we pray that today that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, may it come alive for us. Uh, I pray for Nigel that you would just put your spirit upon him afresh, Lord. Would you speak through him? And would you give us just open ears and open hearts to receive all you want to say to us today? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Good prayer. <laughs> um, I caught a cold, especially for this morning. <laughs> so if I sniff and um, water through this, just pretend it's me being overly emotional. Okay. <laughs> so this month marks the anniversary of Lynn and I being uh, let go from the Anaheim Vineyard. And it's been an interesting year of transition and reassessment, reassessing a lot of stuff. And we've done a lot of traveling. Last month we were in Peru, and, uh, and we were away for the whole month. That was good. Uh, we used to have a pre-dinner drink uh, on the ship that we were on, and the Filipino guy that was serving us, his name was Lord, L-O-R-D. So you could get your drink and say, Thank you, Lord! <laughs> And I'm not making it up. You, you could hear, thank you, Lord, all over the bar. <laughs> so it was while we were in Lima, I received Michael's email asking me to speak today. So that must count as your first uh, mission to Peru, I yeah, think. Yeah, right. So over the years, th- uh, this year, uh, this last year being no exem- exception, I've needed to drastically change my perspective on life and adjust to the change and that wasn't easy and it hasn't been easy over the course of my life for instance years ago believe it or not I actually had hair on my head okay I could spring out of low chairs in a single bound without grunting and my back never ever went out without me Those were the days. Welcome to the real world, right? Speaking of the real world, here's a reality check for you guys, and it's a checklist. If you can start the day without caffeine or energy drinks, if you can be cheerful, 
ignoring aches and pains. If you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food day after day and yet be grateful for it, if you're patient and understanding when loved ones are too busy to give you the time of day, if you can take criticism without resentment, if you can face the world without resorting to lies and deceit, if you can conquer tension and relax without medical help, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can do all these things, then you are, most probably, the family dog. Gotcha. <laughs> There it is. Reality officially can and does bite. And the bottom line is that despite our best efforts or any youthful resilience we may have, our bodies age, the bottom line sags. <laughs> and if, sorry, I've got to inflict bad British humor on you. Yeah, and our circumstances and situations can change in a, in a heartbeat sometimes drastically, as in Lennon and my case. But such things are written into the fine print of our lives and inevitably require some kind of attitude adjustment when they occur, whether the pressure comes from within, whether it comes from without. We eventually discover that life does not come with an easy button, right? Those of you who know me uh, know that I never tire of speaking about the enormity of God's love. I hope I never tire of it, especially the receiving of it and the giving of it. I don't know about you, but when the pressure is on, I'm in the desert once again. The, the dark voices in my head are getting louder and louder. And I find myself having to revisit, reassess, check up on God's goodness and his commitment towards me and make some heavy withdrawals from the divine mercy department, you know, the DMD. <laughs> And the primary way I do that is through prayer. I pr often pray that deep theological prayer. Help! No joke. But I also dial up to my awareness, the Lord's mercy, by revisiting certain passages of Scripture that He's powerfully used and sustained me with over the years. I remember a particular time when the idea of God loving me was a totally foreign concept. Why on earth would he do such a thing? Here's a little story about how that all changed. It's a very personal one, so I hope you don't mind. And that, this, what I'm, what I'm about to tell you launched us on the journey that we're still on, you know? We were, um, edit, edit, edit. Lynn and I, edit, Lynn and I were living together. We, we were baby, baby, baby Christians but really wanted to get on and move on and, you know, know God and all that stuff. And uh, we, we started attending a little house church and we were befriended by a, an elder and his wife, Arthur, and his wife, Ruth. And everything was going okay and we were, you know, we were still, uh, still together and still living together, attending church. And our names came up at a board meeting one night um, because of our living arrangement. And some of the board wanted to, wanted to ban us from church, you know. We can't have them, we can't have that happening here, kind of thing. But Arthur, bless his heart, saw, huh, that's, Arthur was blind, but he saw, 
in his mind's eye, in his heart, that God was doing something in our lives. So he said, well, no, leave it to me. I'll, um, I'll go around and have a chat. And Arthur's little chats were fearsome things. Um, so they came around and, uh, you know, broke open some scripture and basically said to us, you know, God's got something better for you guys, much better. But then he said something which took me totally by surprise. He said, as I see it, you've got two, you've got two, you know, two courses of action. You can move out of Lynn's bedroom into your own room in the house. And there was another musician living there as well. He used to spend three or four nights there. Anyway, or you can move out of the house altogether. But why don't you ask God what to do? And, you know, I said, oh, okay, as if I knew (laughs) what that meant. He said, what I would do is set aside half a day and ask God what you should do. And so... I was determined to do that. Um, I left Lynn in one room. I took my Bible. I thought, if you're going to ask God, you better take his book with you, right? So I sat down at the table, and it took me ooh, 10 seconds. Shall I go or shall I stay? I don't know what was supposed to happen next. I just sat there. So after 10, 15 minutes, you know, my Bible was there, so I just started thumbing through it and got to that passage in Isaiah and it was highlighted in a way that I can't describe and personalized in a way that I can't describe and Isaiah 43 I don't know if you know is speaking of God's love and redemption towards his people as they get to the end nearing the end of their exile so he said to me fear not For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. So as I read those large, encouraging words, the Lord reached deep inside me and accessed my heart with his love. He broke through and I broke down. It's the first time ever in my life that I believed God was speaking to me. I spent about 20 minutes sobbing my eyes out, And he never did answer my question. I went into the next room and said to Lynn, I think I'm supposed to stay. And she said, I think you are too. So I moved out into my own room and a year later we were married. And uh, much to the amazement of the bass player who lived in the the house, what are you guys doing? Well, it's kind of God, you know, that thing. And uh, that passage is one of my, still one of my main go-to passages when things get tough, when life gets interesting, tricky, and complicated all at the same time. It's one of the passages I visit, but I want you to notice something about the wording. When you pass through the waters, and when you pass through the rivers, when you walk through the fire, 
I had no clue as to implications of that word when. It doesn't say if, it says when. And there have been many when times in my life since. And given the choice, I'd like to read it more like this. Why doesn't it say something like, if perchance you should accidentally drift into some minor difficulties or inconveniences and find yourself in the desert, I'll make them all go away instantly. Thank you, Lord. But he doesn't say that. Rather, the implication is when everything seems totally out of control, when you're losing your game plan for life, when you lose your job, when you're diagnosed with cancer, when you're in a desert place, when the manna hits the fan, so to speak. The Lord, I asked Michael if I could say that. He said yes, okay? So if you're offended, his cell number is... We have basically, I say that to say this, we have the promise of his presence in all the when moments of our lives, in the dry desert season. And what makes all that possible? Well, it's his faithful commitment to finishing what was started in the garden, following through on the Eden ideal that was never realized, but one day will be fulfilled. Along those lines, I have a little five-minute video I'd like us to watch together. Bible Project, guys. Great. There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, Avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake and it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great grandsons, this guy named Judah. 
And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil and that it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus' power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. Cool, huh? Yeah, Bible Project, check them out, they're great guys. Um, it's difficult, I think, for many of us, if we're honest, to truly grasp the enormity of God's love for us. It's an ongoing process, at least it is for me. There's a book by a guy named David Benner entitled Surrender to Love, and he has this quote, I'll have this quote from it. Take a moment and try a simple exercise. The results will tell you a great deal about your spiritual journey. 
Imagine God, and that's the God of the Bible, because you know God is a title, right? It's not a name. Imagine God thinking about you. What do you assume God feels when you come to mind? When I ask people to do this, a surprising number of them say the first thing they assume God feels is disappointment. Others assume God feels anger. In both cases, people are convinced that it is their sin that first catches God's attention. I think they're wrong, Benner says, and I think the consequences of such a view of God are enormous. End quote. So getting this love thing isn't easy. We may feel we've disappointed God in some way, or he's angry with us. It could be we feel guilty or ashamed because of something we've done or something maybe we haven't done. Or it could just be that we've taken our eyes off something which is crucial, crucially important, and yet we've grown so familiar with it, we can't see it for its true worth anymore. And I'm speaking about the cross of Christ. As Christians, we have certain practices. We read the word, we worship, serve, attend a group, you know, give of our time, energy, money, all good things. But as beneficial as, some of those, as all of those things are, they're not the core of our faith. A guy by the name of Oswald Chambers, who wrote a book called My Utmost for His Highest, says this, suggests this, the center of salvation is the cross of Jesus. And the reason it's so easy to obtain salvation is, is because it costs God so much. The cross is the point where God and sinful man merge with a crash and the way to life is opened. But the crash is on the heart of God. The cross of Christ, it is there we are delivered from both the penalty and the power of sin. It is there that we will always find mercy and superabundant, lavish grace. Someone said, call it the utterly irresponsible grace of God. I love that. The irresponsible grace of God poured out on us who deserve the exact opposite. My iniquity, my sin, my stuff is all I ever brought to the table in this deal. My rebellion, my self-centeredness, my self-sufficiency and miserable pride all added up to one thing. I was utterly helpless before the Lord, powerless to escape sin, powerless to escape death, powerless to resist the snake around my heart that was coiled around my heart. Until, as we saw in the video, Jesus turns up and everything changes, or everything has the potential to change. N.T. Wright paints this picture. The pain and tears of all the years were met together at Calvary, on Calvary. The sorrow of heaven joined with the anguish of earth. The forgiving love stored up in God's future was poured out into the present. The voices that echo in a million human hearts, crying for justice, longing for spirituality, eager for relationships, yearning for beauty, drew themselves together into a final scream of desolation. First two verses of the great uh, hymn of the 1904 
1905 Welsh Revival, put, put it like this, magnificently reflecting the indescribable love of God that he has for his world. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When the Prince of Life, our ransom, gave for us his precious, shed for us his precious blood, who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise, he can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the mount of crucifixion, floodgates open deep and wide, fountains open deep and wide, sorry, through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Here are a few ifs to consider as we land this thing. If you're in your own when moment or stranded in the desert at this stage in your life, if you're tempted to believe that God doesn't care, to doubt that he's concerned about your present circumstances, you're tempted to doubt that he's anywhere around for you. I would encourage you with everything that's within me, especially in this season as we approach Easter, to take a fresh and long look at the cross of Christ and to see what's happened there through maybe fresh lenses. Imagine God thinking about you this morning. What do you assume he feels when you come to his mind? The real answer to that question can always be found at the foot of the cross of Calvary. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the Prince of Life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, brother. In a moment, we're going to come to the table and we're going to celebrate what Jesus did on the cross. But before we do, we're going to take just a moment, just as the band plays some instrumental, just to create some space for us to just kind of prepare our hearts and just kind of clear the air uh, with, with God. And so this is a time when historically Christians have taken a moment even just to confess their sins to God and say, Lord, forgive me. And so if there's something specific that God brings to mind, I invite you just to lay that at his feet, lay that at the foot of the cross, invite his forgiveness, and then he would just love to just cleanse you and just cover you with his mercy afresh. There's some words in the bulletin, sort of a classic prayer of confession, if you'd like to use that to guide you. Just take a moment in God's presence together in silent prayer.